This show may become the most poignant in this series, The Joe Jackson Tapes Revisited. Why? Because Glenn Campbell is suffering from Alzheimer's disease and probably wouldn't be able to recall most of the memories and the events that he and I discussed during our 1990 interview. Then again, he may be able to do so after I send him a copy of this show. Parts of it may even make the man smile, which sure would be gratifying for me as a Campbell fan. And let me say that the tape you're about to hear was made by me as part of a kind of parallel path I always walked as an interviewer. I became an interviewer purely to meet my heroes such as Leonard Cohen, and over the following 30 or so years, apart from my professional commissions for magazines such as Hot Press and newspapers like the Irish Times, I continued to seek out just to have a chat with people whose work I loved. That said, Campbell was never really a hero of mine as such, but maybe, like many listeners tonight, I fell in love with his music from the time of his breakthrough hits in 1967, John Hartford's Gentle on My Mind and Jim Webb's By the Time I Get to Phoenix, both of which were followed by two more Campbell definitive readings of Webb classics, Wichita Linesman and Galveston. I was even the kind of kid who'd play, over and over, the 45 of Where's the Playground Susie, just to hear Campbell's guitar licks at the end. Speaking of which, as soon as I learned that he played on sessions such as Nat King Cole's Lazy, Hazy, Crazy Days of Summer, Elvis's Viva Las Vegas and the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations, before breaking through as a singer, I realised I'd loved Campbell's guitar work all my life. So when Glenn came to Dublin in 1990, at the cusp of what was being called New Country, I almost ran to Jury's Hotel to meet the man. And we started off talking about that subject, New Country. But first, let's hear the song that gave me my kickoff question for our interview and that I dedicate to all my fellow fans of Glen Campbell. As for the show itself, I hope it makes you feel like you're sitting there in that hotel room listening to Glen Campbell and I. Okay, so uh, last night we had over in the stadium, you had uh, Katie Lang, who would be seen by one of, you know her? Oh yes, I know she. She would be seen by a lot of our readers as a newer breed of country singer mm-hmm. who's who is out to skewer the kind of person you sang about in Rhinestone Cowboy. Maybe so. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good analogy. Was your was Rhinestone Cowboy had it got its element of parody too? Uh, there's been a my it's, that's my philosophy song. I, mean, I loved it when I heard. You know, I've been walking these streets so long, which I had. Right. And it's all I'd done since I was, professionally, since I was 15 years old. Uh, but when I heard, there's, a load of comp- there's been a load of compromising on the road to my horizon. And there has. There'll be, in the second verses, you know, I don't mind the rain, there's pain, but you're down when you're riding the train, it's taking a long way. Right. But I'll dream of the things I do with a subway token or ticket and my shoe. There will be a load of compromising on the road to my horizon. In other words, if you can learn to live with the compromises and not bastardize yourself. In other words, don't cut something because whoever it is, in your organization, if it's a hundred people, if it's your friends, if you do not feel it in your heart, don't do it. You're right. bastardizing your art. Right. So, so, but, so then you're saying it was, uh, somebody said there was an element of parody, you're saying there wasn't, it was a very serious philosophical song to you. The Rhinestone? Yeah, there, wasn't, oh, yes, there wasn't an element of parodying the style of uh, country singer or singer who might no. was describing. That was my dreams. That was that was my song. <laughs> when I, I heard that on the radio, and I said, you know, but I want to be where the light is shining on me. I mean, I take that literally as uh, Jesus being the light shining on me, you know, right, or right. the light of truth shining on me. Okay, so what do you think of the newer breed of country singers? The uh, 
I saw you, I think you were getting a dig at Dwight Yoakam, the man with the hat. Oh, so no, I said this. <laughs> <laughs> I said, country music is so, you know, we run this mill. So does Pops, you know, so does classical or rock and roll. I did it. Okay, get to the hats. Uh, we call this the, the quote uh, generation that I come from. We call this, the dec Roger Miller calls it the decade of the hats. Right. You know, everybody's got a hat. It doesn't matter if they got hair or if they don't have hair or what. They got a hat pulled down to here, you know, and they're always talking to you like this, you know. Uh, even a, a dear friend of mine, uh, whom I think is writing and, uh, and doing heavy, good songs, I, th I think here in the real world, Alan Jackson. I don't know if he's been over here yet. Not yet, no. He just had a number one, his second record released. The first one got way up in the charts, the second one was number one. And it's called Here in the Real World. And I, it's, I think it's good hardcore. Right. Very good country, like it used to be. Well, look at Katie Lang. Uh, you know, having the hit on the old Roger Miller song that he wrote in the late 50s or early 60s. Uh, Ricky Van Sheldon had the old Don Gibson song from the late 50s. The Roger Miller song, you know, don't we all have the right? They're not doing anything new. They're right. going back and taking the cream of then and bringing it to now because the people that are fans of them, now, they never heard these songs in. They think they're new songs. Right. So would you would you have more empathy with the revivalist movement rather than, uh, Katie and I calls herself a new progressionalist rather than a new traditionalist? Uh, she's, she's trying to put maybe new themes are looking at old themes from a slightly different angle She's to extend it, to extend the range of country. I, I would call Katie's, from what I've seen of her, uh, I've seen her on uh, live on talk shows with a band singing, like on The Tonight Show, things like that. She's very good. Yeah. But what she's doing is, is she's reshuffling the, she, the cross between, uh, I used to call my music a, a cross between country rock and pop. I right. say call it crock, if you like. Katie Lang is doing a cross between country, bluegrass, and rock. Right. With the fiddles and with the square dancing and with everything that she does. And she's she's very, she's she's powerful at it. I think so you, Katie Lang's a good talent. So you think the whole the kind of Clint Backs, the Dwight Yoakams, the uh, Randy Travis, all that is a healthy a healthy sign in terms of, because it's appealing to a lot of people like over in Ireland who would have mm -hmm. been rock fans or who would be more rooted in pop or rock are saying there's more here than I thought. I don't think Katie Lang would appeal to the layman like Randy Travis would. Because me, that's straight ahead, you know, you don't have to be real hip to understand it. I mean, he lays it on the line for you. Right. So does, uh, I think, Dwight Yoakam, too. You know, all he did, yeah. I, mean, I did one of old, uh, of Johnny Horton's songs in my album called I'm a One Woman Man, which George Jones picked up and had a hit on right. out of those, still within the sound of my voice. And him doing Honky Tonk Man, uh, you know, I mean, he, he ain't doing nothing new. Right. Right. Do you personally, think? I like Johnny Horton's record of Honky Tonk Man do better you? than Dwight Yoakam's. I mean, that's my personal okay, opinion. Yeah. Do you think that uh, Nashville is uh, is opening more to embrace its uh, the rock rock roots rather than the way it closed off in '58? I mean, it formed the Country Music Association against Elvis, against the rock influence. Does it seem now, 30 years later, to be kind of saying, "Wait a second. I think they're finally yeah, getting yeah. the bridles off of the mules, you know, and they yeah. let them see a little wider perspective of it, you know, rather than this this little narrow vision. This wasn't uh, musicians. This wasn't artists doing this. This was these old hardcore businessmen in Nashville that says, "Well, this isn't traditional country, and I just like it," you know. But they're like, and they are. They were like a mule with blinders on. They didn't accept me, right. I, but I happen to have a network television show in the states that accepted Glenn Campbell. The people right. in general in America, the people in Great Britain in general accepted Glenn Campbell, I think from television, probably more so than records. Why did they not accept you at the beginning? 
I mean, you started, you had kind of a basic country uh, burning some of the They didn't know where to slot me. They didn't, you know, it, my first actually big hit, I guess, was Gentleman of Mine. And the second was by the time I get to Phoenix, and they're yeah. totally different. You know, you could classify one as bluegrass, right. and you could classify the other as pop. What about Burning Bridges and stuff before that? Yeah, that, that I think Burning Bridges is a, that was that never was a country hit. Right. I mean, by Jack Scott, it was a pop record in the fifties. Right. Because I remember the reason I liked it. I was with the Champs, and we were going right. on. Uh, Jack Scott was in the group, and we had to back Jack Scott. And you know, it was this bounds and letters. You if that wasn't country, I can't tell you what is. I think what is now they're calling country is what the Eagles were doing. I think the Eagles are fantastic. Linda Ronstadt. That's what I hear Linda Ronstadt and the Eagles more on country radio stations now in America than I do on pop stations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there was that reaction though against your own work in the uh, early '60s. They didn't know where to slot me. You know, so I was, it was being the marketing people in charge again, and the business people as opposed there to you art go. artists. There you go. But when television hit, it didn't matter to the television viewers. You know, they wanted they wanted to go out and buy Glenn Campbell. They didn't care what what he was. You know, and then and you're in a record store. You're in a record store. Right. And they didn't know where to put me in the record stores. <laughs> you know, I would be <laughs> under I would be under folk because I had a twelve string folk album right. out. You know, in the early sixties. But 60s. you did you did that too, didn't you? I mean, you you moved from field to field of, of your own choice. Yeah. And you also had like the history of uh, of, of session work with people like you'd worked with Presley. Mm -hmm. I mean, what um, Viva Las Vegas, I believe. Yeah. That session. Yeah, Ann Margaret was the highlight of the session. What, She'd that? come in to sit down and watch the, watch the recordings. <laughs> right. So, uh, what were those sessions like? I mean, what was that? Would it have been on the ballads? There was a good ballad in, in that movie. It was one of the rare I Need Somebody to Lean On. Oh, yeah. A very jazzy kind of uh, Sinatra ish type ballad. Elvis was. Elvis, people don't. Uh, the sex symbol, forget that. Elvis Presley was one of the best singers, I think, though his phrasing. He was uh, to uh, country rock what Sinatra was to big band, I think. Uh, Elvis could sing anything, and he, he could uh, he could pull it off. Uh, how, how how would you work with him? Have worked with him musically? Would you have been given a set line to play, or would it have been very much kind of improvised during the session? Oh, it was or? all improvised during the session. Yeah. We they said well, they sat around and sang gospel with a quartet with a Stamps quartet. Uh, you know, when we were as musicians, we were still getting paid, so we loved it. You know, <laughs> they'd do it right. for for a couple of hours. They'd sit around, and then Elvis would get in the mood, and he'd get an idea, and he'd get it. And okay, he said, "Let's do what I say." So we all knew what I say. So we sat down and actually got a good cut on what I say. Is that what you were playing lead on? Something like what I say in Vivian's mm -hmm. Lakes itself, and the other right. kind of, the rockers, the rockers from those sessions. Yeah, kind of up tempo stuff. I was in a group of musicians that uh, that we did literally. I'm talking to bass, drums, piano, and guitars. There was probably there's only actually two drummers that did it then. Well, uh, uh, Jim, God love him, uh, Gordon, Jimmy Gordon, Hi. was one of the drummers that did some like the Everly Brothers stuff. But uh, the old, uh, it started from the old Phil Spector days. Hi. There was a, like five or six guys that did mainly all the soundtrack rhythm tracks, which was, I'm, I'm talking about from, my first one was He's a Rebel, okay. the Crystals. Guitar? Uh, yeah. Hi. But it was this 12 string, Hi. I knew how to use a capo, 12 Hi. string rhythm. Uh, the old Righteous Brothers stuff, right. the Christmas the album that he did right, with right. The, the. It was actually Darling Love and the Blossoms, but they called them the Crystals. Crystals was nowhere right. around that I ever saw. Right. Uh, and the the old Righteous Brothers stuff, then the, uh, Jan and Dean, the Beach Boys, uh, the Mamas and Papas, Associations. 
What were those sessions with Spectre like? I mean, Leonard Cohen has spoken of sessions with Spectre, which he said were pretty dark, neurotic, and dangerous, to say the least. Well, they were they were uh, scab dates. Yeah. You know, they were two for thirty-five. All right. Yeah. They weren't unions. Some of them weren't used in union sessions. Do, they, do you feel bad about that? Do you feel used? Did you not feel? Of like course, you feel them? used, but uh, you know, look where he is now. Right. Everyone gets their just due. Right. Of all those sessions, you also did uh, stuff with Sinatra and Akin Cole and that. I mean, right. if you had to look back through those, which of them would you say you learned most from? A as a human being, and B as a musician. As a musician, I learned more from working with the likes of uh, George Shearing, uh, Shelley Mann. Jazz bass. Yeah, uh, the 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 Nat King Cole sessions were just awesome. Uh, Which sessions were they? Very in. They were, yeah, it's a, you know the Lazy Daisy Hazy Crane right. Summer Series. They, like, there's a couple of albums that he did before. Pop he died. country near the pop country bass. Commercialism, yeah. commercialism, I yeah. call it. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why why the uh, jazz bass more satisfying to you? The room for improvisation, the room for. Yeah. Uh, but what we did, Nat would want to jam some and loosen up before. So it would be Ray Brown on bass, Earl Palmer on drums, right. and uh, Nat King Cole on piano and Glenn Campbell on guitar. And I mean, it was just, you know, I was in hog heaven. Well, why'd you have to dream about Rhinestone Cowboy? You already had it. Oh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have Rhinestone Cowboy then. But you were playing, You were playing obviously, what a lot of musicians would have dreamed of playing in any oh, of those sessions with right, those guys. Definitely. With all you know, those guys. Strangers in the Night. I thought that was a marvelous, marvelous Did you do that? Music. Yeah. Right. Sinatra apparently didn't like that because that was uh, his daughter, or was it something stupid? His daughter hauled him into a pop song. He wasn't too enamored by the whole idea of uh, going for the charts. Well, Jimmy Bowen, who uh, I'm still working right, with, that's right, we yeah. started out doing demo sessions. Uh, no, he, Sinatra really didn't want to do it. Jimmy had to talk him into it. Because he thought pop was cheap or 45s, the whole thing. Well, he market. thought it was commercialism again. Right. But he Strangers in the Night is a good song. Sure, yeah. Uh, he was more an albums artist at the time. He was September more into, of my years know. and all that stuff. Oh, right. I did it my way. Yeah, yeah. You know, how many people are going to survive doing it their way? Right, you know, so uh, on the other there level... There will be a load of compromising. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got it. Uh, on the other level, as a human being, from which of, or from one of those people would you say you've learned most, or if anything, or would you not have had kind of social contact with them? Oh. You know what I mean? There's not just one. Uh, it, it would be numerous. Uh, learning from a human being is standpoint. I've seen, I saw, I've seen the suffering, and the adulation of the people like Elvis. I think it was the people around Elvis that did it. So I learned a lot from Elvis. What not to do? What not kind of a situation to get yourself into? Chance? You can't. You cannot have. You cannot put a barrel around you. You cannot, regardless of how big the barrel is, and and have any kind of outlet with us with the outside world. When Elvis and I would sit down and talk, it would just go on and on and on. Because he never actually got to see anybody except the people around him. They kept him in such a cocoon. So what you talk about, would he have had this kind of, we say, they say now he had a bias towards uh, reading about spiritual life, about religions, about philosophy, that he was deeply interested in those areas? Yeah, but or I was think... at the time he had the image of being so rather He was into numerology. Numerology yeah, itself. I, yeah. You know, you can be religious and worship a hog. Right. You know, be a Christian. Uh, if you're going to be, be a Christian, follow the teachings of so the truth. So did you argue with him over that, or would you not have had the right I didn't know then. No, I didn't argue with him over it. I, I just let it be and let it go. But you didn't have that religious base then, did you? I had the base. Right. But I, I, I didn't really understand the teachings of Jesus Christ at that time. You know, and really what a sensational truth and, and honest you know, for people to, to, to live their lives, you know. Right. I tell you, I'll get to that near the end because I think it relates more to the later part of right. your life. Is that okay? So, uh
Yes, I did like to structure my interviews and they tended to go from light to dark or rather from relatively superficial subjects to focus more so on subterranean subjects that to me were central to an interviewee. So you have a choice here. Hang in or reach for that dial and run like hell. I'm kidding. Hang in here. I hate talking to myself. But before I left the subject of Glenn's days as a session musician, and by the way, for those who don't know, Campbell was born in Billstown, Arkansas in 1936, and he started playing guitar as a child. Anyway, I had to ask him about his work with the Beach Boys. So, uh, yeah, you also, uh, just to wrap up the kind of rock-pop connection, you, you were touring with the Beach Boys mm -hmm. for like six months or something when Brian first took... Yeah, you know, when Brian first... I was doing their sessions. It was that same bunch of musicians. Right. Like I said. Oh, uh, I had been doing their sessions. They called me on Thursday. Mike called me, Mike Love, and said, Glenn, can you fill in for Brian? And I said, well, you know, I've done it in the studio. Sure, why not? And what sessions did you play? Because I'd seen in one book that they, they claimed you hadn't. And then I said somewhere else, I read somewhere else that you did play on the actual recording sessions. Oh, so, so what did you record from, uh, Vibrations? It wasn't Good Vibrations, it would have been 66. Oh yes, I played on Good Vibrations. I did five different single sessions on Good Vibrations with Brian. Right. Brian, it was usually just Brian and musicians in the studio. Uh, the only ones I played on with the, where Dennis was playing drums and uh, they had a bass player, I don't know who was playing bass. I was playing rhythm uh, on uh, Dance, Dance, Dance. Da, 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 do, 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 do. Uh, the Pet Sounds album. And all the stuff that was basically the Pet Sound album was was less a Beach Boys album than a Brian Plus Musicians album, wasn't it? I mean, I came back in and dubbed on kind of some intricate harmonies yeah. after they toured, but basically it was an album that should be credited to all the musicians involved plus Brian's overarching. I would I would say so. I think Brian was a total. I think he was a creative, the whole creative force behind the Beach Boys because I would play. We'd do tracks. Is what we would do. Brian said, "Play this." And he would really try to get it to really a great feel, whether it was Surfing USA or whatever. And uh, when I would hear them on the radio, because I didn't hang out with the Beach Boys then. Right. Uh, Did you choose not to? I mean, they had a pretty well. Dark. No, but they, you know, these guys they were, were super, yeah, superstars. Yeah, right. And then when I was asked to go on the road with them, it was just, you know, I, said, I don't know the. I knew that I knew that I could play that play it backwards, but I had to play bass. All right. Yeah, and uh, yeah. and sing Brian's part which right. was like patting your head and rubbing your stomach. <laughs> and I said, I don't know the words, Mike. He said, well, you know, you know the parts. I said, sure, I can sing, the, I can sing any part. Thank you, Lord. And uh, it was really an incredible experience for me for about the first week, oh, you yeah. know, because, so little lady from, I raised my voice a good tone and a half. From Pasadena. And I'm, cool, Brainy. And you're, just, you're singing up here these high A's and high B's and playing bass. And it was just, I just, I would laugh on stage because I said, Glenn, this is just, you're not a bass player. What are you doing? But, right. I, but I could play bass, you know. Somebody said it helped you hone your voice. It really did. It gave me a range. That's, that's why, I, for, after that I started singing everything about a key higher. Yeah. Or a tone and a half higher. I'd start them high, and then it would go into where I couldn't already reach it. You know. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And and what was the touring? Was the touring like in Stephen Gaines' book? It depicts the touring as pretty sordid and dark in terms of sex, drop, road drugs, and surfing songs. <sighs> I didn't notice that that much. I really didn't. Uh, I know the guys wouldn't talk to press that much. It seemed I would. I ended up doing. You know, they had been out there, and they had been hassled. 
I had not been out on the road and been hassled by, by press or yeah. by fans or whatever. In fact, the first night, I was moseying to the car. The guys had took off, and I thought, well, what are they running from? You know, but this was what was going through my mind. Then I realized, and when some fans attacked me from the back and say, he touched Dennis, and they tore my shirt, or it's actually their shirt, they had, you know, uh, actually something like I got on that. <laughs> got, a few, style too. got a few locks of hair, <laughs> and from that day forward, I was the first one in the car. Right. But I would end up talking to the press, but no, it wasn't. They didn't. I didn't see any drugs, and I didn't see any sex on the road. Would they have kept that from you for any particular reason? Because obviously, well, I just I didn't hang out. You know, I was married, and I had a child at the time. Right. There, there was also the whole kind of they had the uh, although the Manson connection was like years later, where the yeah. story really got yeah. kind of rather rather evil. Well, I was just on the road uh, from uh, like December of '84 to maybe '84. Uh, Excuse me, '64. <laughs> yeah. It seemed like 84. <laughs> it seemed like 94, actually, Joe. Uh, okay. From 64 to uh, maybe August, September of 65, Bruce Johnson came in, and I, I was trying to, but Bruce, you know, he's not a, he's not a guitar player or bass player. Bruce is a good keyboard player, right. but he can't play this kind of stringed instrument, the guitar. But I tried it, and he actually did it for a while. But he had, they had to actually hire a bass player and. And, and Bruce went on keyboards because Bruce sings the high high stuff really great because right. I was in their band, Bruce and Terry. It was Terry Melcher right. and Bruce Johnson. Went which on was, tour with them. Which <laughs> was the early, the very early 60s? Yeah, it was 63 right. or 64. Yeah. yeah, before they formed, before they became known. 63, yeah. Right. Listening to that tape again now for the first time in more than a quarter century, I am once again reminded of how lucky I was to be in the presence of a singer and a musician who, think about this, played on sessions with two of the greatest singers of the 20th century, Elvis and Sinatra, and played with one of the greatest groups of the 60s, the Beach Boys. Hug heaven, how are you? But at this point, I shifted the focus more so to the subject of Glenn Campbell himself as a recording artist. I'd always been intrigued that he chose to record a relatively left-of-field song like Donovan's hit, Universal Soldier. Yeah, okay, so Donovan, it was a strange choice. Or... I like what that said. I like what that song says. If you'll go through Glenn Campbell material, I put in the subtle... Uh, Universal Soldier was not subtle by no means. Right. Uh, Yes, but it this is not the way we put the end of war. I mean, I, right. It wasn't a sloganizing protest song at the same time. And a lot of those were, were empty slogans, kind of tuning into a trend, post Dylan. But I think yeah, it, it, I it was saying something. I mean, but who, who wrote that? Buffy Saint Marie. Buffy Saint Marie. Right. Yeah, it wasn't done. I they did a thing to the for the Asians for uh, a, a big special. I remember, oh, the guy played the Odd Couple with Jack Lemmon. Walter Matthau. Yeah. Oh. Right. He introduced a song. This was at the time? Yeah. All right. No, this was uh, oh. early 80s. Right. And they asked me what I want to do. I said, I want to do Universal Soldier. Right. You know, he's five foot two, he's six feet four, he yeah. fights with missiles and with spears. He's all of 31, but he's only 17. He's been a soldier for a thousand years. He's yeah. fighting for, you know, and it's, he's yes, he's a universal soldier, and he really is to blame. His orders come from far away no more. They come from here and there, and you and me, and brothers, can't you see? This is not the way we put the end to war. And Mathau came back and says, where did that song come from? And I told him, I said, I recorded it in 1965 when I was doing Shindig. Right. Donovan was on the show, and he had it on an album. It was on Hickory Records or whatever. Right. And I asked him if he was going to release it as a single, and he said, no, I'm not. Right. He said, I don't want it as a single. So I cut it and released it. And then Hickory Records released Donovan's because Donovan was a, quote, 
big star right, right. and I was nobody that never had anything literally on the charts except turn around and look at me right right you also later when you did something like I know it's jumping forward but something like Galveston mm -hmm. yet you and Jimmy or we heard over here that you both denied that it was an anti-war song in terms of Vietnam that it was more to do with the Civil War was that what I remember no the Spanish-American War Spanish-American Jimmy wrote it about the Spanish-American War could it not also have been an allegorical tale in the 60s oh it could be any war uh, the, the, the canon Pots, holes, the bunkers that the big cannons were in are still there in Galveston, where they were defending Galveston from the Spaniards. Right, but I remember we felt at the time, like even Roy Orbison's song, There Won't Be Many Coming Home, uh, people were copping out by saying it's set against another war. We don't really want to be making a comment against Vietnam because it was a very delicate situation. It's only now, all these years later, that American can finally look in the face of it. Galveston is kind of funny. The battleship Galveston, I got a, a picture from them, and they all signed it. It was just. just it looked like a, a rat had run across a picture with ink on his tail a whole bunch of times. They had so mm -hmm. many autographs on it. Uh, and, the, and the USS Galveston was the battleship. The USS Wichita was a supply ship. Right. And they would meet out there in the, off the coast of Vietnam and when they would, to be resupplied. <coughs> and they would, the, the supply ship would be blaring Wichita linemen. <laughs> and the USS Galveston would be blaring Galveston over their speakers. <laughs> it was just, I got letters on that. I said, that's really strange, you know, that they would associate with it that much. You you, uh, you won the Grammy for the best male vocal of 67 with By the Time I Get to Phoenix. Did that lock you more firmly in a kind of pop context? Were you expected then to follow that pattern? Uh, I never I never thought about it that way. Did I you? just thought it was a, a great honor, you know. Right. Would the record Maybe company have seen it that way and said, this is the kind of stuff we want them to do now if this is scored? You know the way we were talking about earlier, the way yeah. they dominate. Well, it did come, you know, Wichita Lineman came after that. Galveston. Well, a lot of come back. Sorry, Honey, come back. Honey come back. Yeah, yeah. A lot of those stuff, like particularly web songs, uh, Galveston itself, where's the playground, Susie, and that, and song cycles he wrote at the time for Dickie Harris, The Yard Went On Forever, Tramp Shining, and stuff like oh, that. Oh, what a great song. Were highly uh, sophisticated musically and lyrically. You know, what, what was it in them that struck a chord with you? That's exactly what struck a chord with me. I like, I like a, a great melody line married to a real good chord progression. That, to me, that's what makes good music. Then you try to put poetry on top of that, and of which I think Jimmy Webb does it as good as anyone I, I know of, uh, as far as talking about life in general. Uh, Highwayman. Uh, I left Capitol Records because they wouldn't release that as a single. I got in a big hassle with the president of Capitol at the time. Right. But I'm certainly glad the regime has changed because now I'm back on Capitol after right. a 10-year absence because of that one song. I was thought Highwayman was... Fabulous, fabulous tale for Americans. Especially. This is the one that uh, the, the four have picked up on. Yeah, if I did the session with them, I wanted to get it recorded. And seven years later, you it did the session with with the highwaymen, the people like. Yeah, Cash. I was in the studio with Cash. All right. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I did some. I did some work on the new one also because Jimmy had one called. Jimmy had another song that they were considering doing, but Highwayman especially. So that's 1979, early '80, right. and then six years, seven years later, it was it won the Grammy. For song right. of the year, and it was this. And uh, in fact, I reminded one of the guys about it. I called him in London. <laughs> but Rupert Perry, he didn't have anything to do with that end of it. It was the hierarchy that All I right. was. Right. So but I reminded Rupert about Highwayman. You know, I said it was a. I want to record good songs. I don't want to record trendy stuff, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. You did uh, the the. I, I interviewed Jim about two years ago in Los Angeles. And he was saying that he felt that you and I think Art Garfunkel did far more for in terms of a voice or the voice for his songs than 
people like Richard or, or those who kind of just dabbled in it. Up, up and away. you stayed very... Fifth Dimension. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I still record Jimmy's songs. I'm going to do a... Jimmy is a... I'm going to do a contemporary Christian album, whether it be rap or, or heavy metal or rock, because i got to do that. i got to get it out of my system. You know, they've, they've, they've tried to point a finger. Written by what? Yes. All right. Uh, probably four or five songs will be written by Jimmy. Uh, and I'm talking doing it and saying it like it is from, from the Christian side, not from the religious side, because the cults are doing that. You know, they're doing things from a religious side, quote. Uh, you seem to be firmly set against this. Is this because of uh, the, the, the abuse of the, the word or concept of religion by different forms, be it marketing, be it commerce, be it... Yeah. Which we read about over here, obviously, the, the, oh. the selling of religion and people involved who are hypocritical religiously. Who are well, you know, uh, the one that Jimmy's wrote, I mean, the, the one that says, okay, The Last Horse. Is there any... <clears throat> any oh, this is on the new Highwayman album, is it? No, no, this oh, is right. a new okay. song that he has oh, okay. written, that I'm working on now. And he saw, and he wrote, and he, I see, and I saw a white horse, and saw a pale horse, and death was riding on him, and hell was right behind him, and no mortal man outshone him. And the kings of the earth and the mighty men, the glorious and the greedy, hid themselves in the blackest hole with the homeless and the needy. And priest and senate, and the, the, no. And the priest and the television preachers lay down with the vile unholy. And the senators and movie stars shared a cave with the meek and lowly. And they called to the mountains, fall on us. I'm saying he's, right. he wrote, Revelations in a Is song. Is he writing that for you or from himself? He, he writes for himself. Is he? So would he share your Christian base now? Or did he always? Jimmy, Jimmy was raised the son of a Baptist preacher. Right. So he knows the Bible. He had to read the Bible. Right. Jimmy, I asked Jimmy to write a song about, say, thank you, God, and thank you, friend, thank you, mother, thank you, father, thank you, brother, thank you, sister. And it was just one of the greatest songs I've ever seen, but I just I never could get a hook on it. And a friend of mine recorded it, too. Sometimes I forget to thank you for all... Jimmy can... He just writes them. Right. You did... Well, I would write uh, Reunion as one of his finest moments and, and yours, I think, as, as an album. Definitely. You know, you... Uh, I hadn't heard Light Years, was that? I didn't nail it musically as well as uh, a Reunion, I don't think. I nailed Light Years. I think Light Years is excellent. Yeah, I haven't heard that. Have we been told to go? The guy that hears... He's got depth. Oh, okay. He hadn't asked me how old my kids are or anything. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Only a kid's plan. <laughs> oh, God, I forgot that Glenn Campbell said that about me. This guy's got depth. Well, you can fool some of the people some of the time, etc. But seriously, as someone whose life had been changed intrinsically by listening to, say, the multidimensional songs of Jim Webb, as recorded by Glenn Campbell, it would have been, to me, a travesty of that truth to go in and ask him dumbass questions like, how old are your kids, Glenn? So following that interruption, Campbell and I got back to talking about the still underrated album he and Webb made in 74, Reunion. By the way, the wife that Glenn refers to, but tellingly only by her surname, is Tanya Tucker. Right, right, no, just that uh, on the, the, I saw the sleep note on Reunion is Jimmy's a genius and a close friend and I love him, but behind that there's also, at the soul of a lot of those songs, such as Adoration, there's a dark bitterness. There's a kind of hurt. Yeah, finally brought it down to the same chord. Yeah, yeah. You don't know how crazy you sound. Yeah, it's a very angry love song. Well, it's actually, it's, it's, it's come from that point of somebody else telling him what to do and how to do it. You know, you're always talking about my lack of class, the way I smoke, and I didn't even smoke. And 
You're always talking about just living for the moment and being a romantic, and you don't and being and being and talk about freedom, and you don't know what freedom is. You know, he understands that. Did you relate to those on an emotional level? I mean, you, you, you've had, I mean, I, I, it's not something I want to go into really deeply. But you've had a turbulent uh, romantic life or your marriages, three marriages failing or on whoever's Yeah, side. I was, I, that was, I, we cut that in 80, in 74. Right, which was And yeah, I was going through that at the time. And that's exactly the way I felt about this other person. I said, you know, she's always talking about this garbage and she don't know crap about it. You know, she doesn't know one in from the other. And, she and, still don't. And I'm going to but teach. that don't make any difference. And I'm going to teach you what pain is. No, I, that, I, I, not the lyric. That yeah, no man. But I'm going to show you what you don't know what lonely is. Yeah, you don't know what it means to feel goodbye. Oh yeah, but I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you what it means to feel goodbye. You think you know all this other stuff, and I did. I said goodbye. So was that was that cathartic for you? No, not really. No. It was just something that came out at the time. But the whole concept of songs, there is that kind of hurting thread running through it. I know people who play it when they're feeling that way. Even all these, like 16 years later. Uh, the last time I saw her, the Gordon Lightfoot song that I did, uh, I, I thought that would be a big record, but uh, <laughs> they released it as a single and Aiden Cavill didn't promote it. And but the song was like that. You know, the last, the first time I saw her, her lips were like the scented flowers inside a rain-drenched forest. Right. And in the last verse is the last time I saw her, her lips were like the wilted leaves upon the autumn-covered hill, beneath the battered marking stone, it lies forgotten. Right. You know, I mean, it's very. I like a song that tells the story like it is, <clears throat> literally, or tells it in such a way that it's, you know, you got to hear it. Do, does your own life jump those extremes? It has, yes. Yeah. One, one of the extremes you read about was uh, this, this dark period, which I saw referred to in the evening paper, yes, I have to refer to it, is uh, violent outbursts about Tanya Tucker, public violent outbursts. Oh. Would that be when the devil had you by the tail or what? No, I had the devil by the tail. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, yes. do you, how do you describe that? That what, was a stupid, crazy time in my life. Was it? Was it in relation to drink, drugs, or something? Yeah. Uh, I think it was more in relation to her. Was it? Yeah. That's that's amazing. Feverish jealousy. Well, when people deliberately do things, it's like Madonna now acting up on Warren Beatty's movie. All right. The whole she was a pain in the ass. <laughs> Can you, would you justify or do you feel guilty about that, particularly in, no. in, in relation to your, your, your conviction now as a Christian? Do, do you feel? I feel sorry for her. I pray for her. How about yourself, though? Do you think you want oh, to Oh, I've been forgiven. Huh? You repent. You have all repentance. Yes, oh yes, I've been forgiven. And I know it. And I feel it. What but I feel sorry for things that I've already done. What, was the, what did the process of repentance involve? Like Accepting truth. Except in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Was that after all this? Or I have an intercession. I have a Jesus Christ is everything, and He said, "Ask in My name, and My Father shall give it to you." And this is true. Uh, there are celestial beings right now on this earth. There are terrestrial beings. There is a spirit of the flesh, and there is a spirit of the soul. And this is we all have it if we care to acknowledge it, if we care to search for it, if we care to try to find it. It's there. Did part of it, did you have to acknowledge the presence of demons too, though? Of within course yourself? You got it of course. Because part demons of are here. Just like there's more angels than there are demons. Right. But a lot of Christians, and particularly here in Ireland, were raised <coughs> as Catholics <coughs> to embrace only the godly, saintly side. And anything that comes from the other side, we're fearful of or we tend to deny. And that's led to a lot of problems in our country. Whereas I mean, we, you, you publicly blew your image of being a clean cut kind of whatever. 
But you see him too, and that's why I think it's interesting that you've come well, to Well, that was an with image people had of me. I didn't claim to be clean cut and a goody goody boy then. I just looked like I was. Right. I look like I'm a clean cut, goody goody boy now. <laughs> I am a clean cut human being now, yes. I try to live the teachings of, of Christian, of what the Bible says. So were you happy that It has to be in the Bible. Were you happy that time kind of blew, blew that image? Because, I mean, I talked to Dion about Elvis, and he said that Elvis was locked inside presenting a particular goodly image to the world, and a lot of his darkness he couldn't reveal, and then he got right. depressed when the book was written. I put it that, yeah. I buried my soul. You did, and, and yeah. you felt that was healthier for your people who like you? And I didn't really think about it one way or the other, because it was between me and God, because that's when I started reading the Bible and getting into the teachings of Jesus Christ. Which was in 80? Yes. 1980. And I was trying to reform Ms. Tucker. Right. I was trying to find a form anybody around me. <laughs> All my musicians, you know, they just climb up a wall, get out of here, I don't want to hear about it. I'd say, but look at what it says here, you know. So did they see it was a pain in the ass? The yes, they the saw me as a proverbial pain in the ass. They really did. But do, do you feel, and do you still feel you have to do that? Oh, I don't know. I don't, you know, I'm a baby Christian. I was a very a small Christian, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nine-year-old Christian now. <laughs> I'm nine years old. You know, right, and, I'm, and I know as much as a nine-year-old Christian, probably a little more because I've studied at it an awful lot. Right. You can make up your own mind about it. In other words, you have to hit people in the conscience. You can't hit them, in the, you, and I can't tell you, Joe, you got to live this way. I can say, Joe, look at this. This is what this says here, and this was this is the biggest selling book, number been number one for two ever since it was written. No book has ever outsold, not for a moment, not for a day, more. More books than this one. You Not even Willie Shakespeare. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> or the Satanic Verses hadn't even told this much. Well, they ain't likely to. Okay. Just I haven't never even, even <coughs> seen one. Actually, and sadly for me, that guy had interrupted the interview to tell me that my time with Glenn Campbell was just about up. So much to my regret. I wish I'd been able to sit there talking with Campbell for, let's say, a year. I had to fast forward in my list of questions to the subject of Glenn's latest album, Walking in the Sun. You uh, there's a theme on, uh, I think it's a very uh, delicate theme on, on cheating is on the new album, which a lot of people who are involved in kind of, uh, there was one thing somebody said to me in the office when I said I was talking to you, that before, that they might, you might have been seen as the clean cut image was then turned on its head, and that before then you could have been seen as the essential, if I can use the word, hypocritical image of a Nashville or country singer who was living a rather dark, uh, evil, not evil life, but dark life, are presenting the light just the to the public. Light. Yeah, I was, yeah. I, I was, people say, you know, Mr. So-and-so's on the phone, I said, tell him I'm not here. Well, that's a lie. That's what I call lying. Uh, no, I was, you know, I just, amazing. I married them. Uh, I, I went into a relationship with a, like that mule with the bridles on. Blinkered? Yeah, with the, with the, yeah, with, we call them blinders, but oh. they're blinkers. You call them blinkers? Where you could just see if it's here. Yeah, yeah. And then when something else had happened out here you didn't know about, you know, you'd, you'd get so mad. Yes, I was living a hypocritical life at that time. You know, I was, I was drinking a tremendous amount of liquor. I was doing drugs. I was doing cocaine. For long periods or just months? No. It was a short period of my life. Right. I didn't even know about it. My ex-wife first showed me cocaine. I had no idea what it was. Which was when? How, how old would you have been when you first were? Because we have a huge... 1975, 76. Right. Right. So you did it for, what, a year or two? I did it for, like, four years, I guess. And then I jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. Into what? <laughs> as far as the drugs goes, you know. I never did heroin or anything like that. I've never stuck a needle in my arm. Right. But, you know, I didn't realize the crowd then opened up in the other situation that I got into, wherever where you were, you know, there it was. It'd be on tables at parties Coke. and so forth. Yeah. Lines of Coke. And 
Because the grass never did do anything. I grass it just put me to sleep. Was this in the rock pop base or the country base too? You it don't was in the rock it? pop base. Was it? It was in the quote Hollywood uh, set. Set Beverly Hills set. Right. The movie thing. That, that uh, wouldn't be part of the country, would it? It would be more drink and pills. <laughs> it'd maybe. be more. It'd be more. Yeah, it'd be amphetamines and uh, and alcohol more so. Going back to Hank Williams, I mean that goes right back to the right. early fifties. The, the O'Yellers and things. Yeah, yeah. Keep you going. I tried that. I did O'Yeller. Last O'Yeller I did man, was nineteen sixty-seven, and I'll never forget it. You know, you only got to you only got to be hit in this. It was a sledgehammer once to realize that it really does do you some harm. So, do, what, did you uh, almost bring yourself near to death or anything? Was there any? Uh, I was I, a free base one time. Did you? And I, I I laid there. I must have laid there for hours and hours, six or seven hours. You know, I, I almost OD'd. Right. And uh, that broke me from sucking eggs, as they say in the. Country. That was the moment that turned it all around. Yes, definitely. And you've been I never did that again. Right. I just said no. I, I can never do that again. Right, and you, have you been clean since? Or yes. Was it, is it, and did you do that through Christ? I mean, did, did you yes, do I prayed about it. Oh, definitely. And drink uh, alcohol. I haven't. That's amazing. I just don't. That, and it doesn't bother me that, that they have this set up here. I smelled of it, and it was like it was puke. <laughs> Smell like somebody had thrown up. I don't know what it is. Uh, but it's, it's it was a total turnaround. Yeah. I asked for for it, and I got it. Jesus Christ prayers through Jesus Christ has been answered for me numerous times and if I told you some of it you wouldn't believe it nor would your readers probably but I'm talking about as far as turning the clouds back and things like that. So, no, explain that to me just that one even. Oh, I asked for something uh, in 1983 verbatim, exactly the forecaster says it's going to rain seven inches and I and I, I don't remember what I said in the prayer but I was just sitting in the window and it was raining raining and the next day was a golf tournament and I sat there and I must have talked for an hour and a half and the next morning I woke up and the sun was shining, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. But 50 miles to the north and 50 miles to the south, they had upwards of four and a half to five and a half inches of rain. But where I was in Los Angeles, it was clear skies, sunshine. Was your, but I only asked for it for four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I went out Monday morning to play the, cor the golf course, and it was raining just like you was pouring out of a boot. Would and they? I laughed, and I said, you have a sense of humor. I said, had I known it, Lord, I would have asked for Monday also. <laughs> <laughs> and then it turned around again, didn't it? And I'm not, Joe, I'm not talking. No, I've no problem with that. I know, I'm not talking about just yeah. a spirit. It's like Gurry on air this morning with that spoon breaking. That spoon broke. You know, I don't know what kind of acid he's got in his system. <laughs> All right. But I'm saying, verbatim, every single little to the last minute detail. To even the man that won the golf tournament. Now, I, God will show a person things between he and him that he shows no one else. This is why the Jews never believed the prophets. God rest their souls. They just killed them. You know, you can't right. blaspheme God like that, you know. Would, would you, I also read somewhere that your, your, your wife now is, would be maybe one of the answers to your prayers too, that, that that's given you a stabilizing factor in your life over oh, the last definitely. eight years, or is it eight years? Yes, eight years, and we got three little ones. Oh, you see, you, it seemed it seemed to all happen around like early, early, just after the kind of early Tanya Tucker, the dark period, and then you went straight into like was it that kind of like happy ending? It's almost like Hollywood movie. Well, it hadn't ended yet. Well, yeah, but that turnaround yes, seemed to be almost complete. It's so incredible to have a a woman in your life that that understands you as an artist and actually 
appreciates the depth of an artist. You know, it's like that's probably why Van Gogh cut his ear off. He probably, yeah, he, you know, he probably got tired of people rapping at him. You know, saying, "Well, what are you drawing like that for?" You know, yeah, do the <laughs> why song. do you want to cut this kind of a song? You know, just <laughs> get off. Yeah. yeah. Okay, the last question. But to have to have a woman that actually does it and doesn't give you any rap, and I'm totally honest with her. You know, there's no cheating, there's no lying, there's no nothing. There's just truth, honest, just, and fairness. No cheating, no no cheating is. So well, no the, the other angle. To That's that my was daughter singing with me on it. All right. Because she was going through a stormy thing with her marriage, and I, I said, I guess. All right. I didn't purposely do it, but I said, Debbie, sing harmony with me on this song. But you did the song is about how the children are the ones who often are. The children are the ones that suffer. Right. I've seen it in my sons. Right, right. Rather than the adults, as they go, as you say, with the blinders, I got it. Rather yeah. than blinkers, they don't see the pain they're causing to uh, there you go. young ones. It's like when someone messes around with somebody else's husband or wife; they don't realize the chain reaction that sure. that hurts in the latter end. Right, and that's what that song is about. Yes. So, okay, fully aware that it was nearly time for me to leave, if not to be booted out of that hotel room, I rushed to, let's face it, relatively superficially sum up. Glenn's latest album. Okay, there was uh, the, the, this kind of just the last two questions would be that uh, the the blues rock shuffle on a, on a good night, mm -hmm. the country in the title tune, the pyrotechnical exhibitionism in William Tell, or the kind of <laughs> <laughs> the what? Wait a minute, let me hear that again. Pyrotechnical exhibitionism. Pyrotechnical, yeah. <laughs> or the Cecil B. DeMille extras. Oh, right. On Jesus on your mind. Eddie Van Halen will try to figure that one out. <laughs> yeah, they didn't work on that. <laughs> Tell exit to him. Right, so which or where, where, where is the, uh, if you can call it, the real Glen Campbell in that uh, blend of, on the new album is purposefully spread right around, musically. On a good night, uh, and you will not lose. You will not lose yeah. and get, get, oh, I wish I could have had more time to work, you know. There was something wrong with the studio. One of the gates wasn't working, and it really interfered with the feel of the song. We recut On a Good Night, and we, re, we recut Gone, Gone, Gone. Uh, because of, but we didn't redo the other one because Jimmy thought we could do it without it because it just runs the cost of the album to astronomical proportions. All right, Jim. but on a good night, I think fits every couple in, a, in the world, and I like it. I think it feels good, and you know, I'm singing it well, or the singing on it as well, whether I did it or not. Why are you showing off with William Tell after all these years? You've been doing that. On I finally got it like <laughs> I finally got it like I wanted to do it. I had done it with a studio band. I did it with the Royal Philharmonic. Oh, yeah. But it, it was still, I couldn't bear to listen to it because there were too many things in it that going just on. did going on. Right, so I cut right. it with a guitar, a rhythm section, and a fiddle. And I love it. Do you think the original composer would appreciate <laughs> <laughs> No, I went and asked him about it. I said, what do you think about that, Rossi? And he said, don't bug me now, I'm decomposing. <laughs> right, so the last question is, Stone once said of you that in album after album, Campbell's True Grit triumphs over schlock production and the necessity to cover a broad country pop base. That's just... What do you think of that? I'll agree with them to a certain extent. Yeah, this, some of them have been sloppy, if that's what that means. Well, True it's, good it's, it's over the, the sloppy Yeah, that the voice, the, this quality in the voice, that when the, the... Well, for a lot of people, we say our readers, country music or country pop can be too syrupy. So if you don't have some kind of metal bar running through it, yeah. as in your voice, it's too well, much. I thought that's what they meant by the true grid. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm pleased with the way I, I've sung. I'm not pleased with the way I've sung everything I've sung. Or everything you've sung. Oh uh, yeah, uh, everything I've sang. Same song. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I, yeah, I'll agree with it. Bro, what does that say? Uh, um, it said that uh, 
this is the quote. In album after album, Campbell's True Grit triumphs yeah. over schlock production and the necessity Sh to... Schlock. Schlock production. I definitely agree with you. Yeah, and the necessity... That's what it's been. Uh, I have an album out on Canaan Records. It's called Glenn Campbell Sings Favorite Hymns Featuring Tall Oak Tree. It's the best production, as good as singing, and as good of album as I've ever recorded because I went in the studio with no producer, with Glenn Campbell, and it took me three years to finish it, and I'm very pleased with the album. And it's called Glenn Campbell Favorite Hymns, and you can probably pick it up at a Christian bookstore. It's not even been, it was released, it's on CD, it's on, and cassette. Not, there has not been a vinyl made of it. Would you say that it's, a, oh, it's not done on vinyl. So would you say that was your, your, your purest moment in the uh, studio? Of course, I would. And it's not rock and roll, it's right. not country, it's not pop, it's just me singing songs like I want to sing them with the arrangements that I like. Well, the, la the last question is just grows out of that is that uh, I, I interviewed Sam Phillips and he was saying that as far as he was concerned, both country and, and gospel or religious music are the two most neglected, or Christian music, yeah. are the two most neglected influences in rock and roll. And it's a pity because I know some readers are going to read it and the minute they see you saying it's, it's, it's a Christian album they'll forget that there was this whole kind of lineage, that whether it was Presley, who took from white gospel, black gospel, spiritual music oh, and definitely. all that. It seems to be one of those areas that, that's not legitimate for some dubious That's only music criteria. I've heard for years. I mean, I was, we, didn't even, we didn't have electricity. But I, the singing I heard was in church. Right. You know, we were all breastfed. I'm one of 12. Mama was in church every Sunday. So that's all you, and no music, just singing, because Church of Christ didn't allow music in the church. Oh, yeah, just vocals. Just, just and you know, that's what I mean about religion, was to get... It's stupid to me not to have music in a church or not to, to deny right. anything. Right. You know, you can't right. dance. That's why Baptists don't. Uh, right. <laughs> you can't uh, show. That's show why. Yeah, that's why Baptists don't make love standing up. That's why people think they're dancing. It's <laughs> a great quote to end it with. <laughs> okay. Okay. What I said there, in case you didn't hear it, was I thank you, and I'd still say it absolutely, sincerely, in a thousand ways to Glenn Campbell. Thanks for listening to tonight's show. And let's end with a Campbell recording and let's make it Christian. <laughs>